All right, everybody, good morning. We are so, so glad that you were at high school. So do I have high school? A few? White? Are those white t-shirts today? Are they the blue? They're the blue? Ukraine? Okay, with pride. Hey, we want to welcome you. We are glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 18 is where we will start this morning. I was, um, I was teaching last Christmas Eve. Uh, at the church I was at, and uh, we were doing this big old, like, ceremonial thing called a post-Hilleron, which, anytime you can use that word, that is awesome. And we had this big thing we were doing, and, and I was reflecting, we, we did like five or six services, and I was reflecting on, on the pressure I feel every Easter and every Christmas to tell the story again in a fresh way. And, and I, was, I, was just, I was just thinking, like, well... When was it that we ceased being astonished by the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? And, and, and because we're not astonished anymore, we have to substitute all of this other stuff to get us excited about it. You know, I was just, I mean, it was just me. I don't know if it's you, but, but when did we cease being astonished by our God? Why can't we just get up at Christmas time and say, hey, Jesus was born in a manger and then worship for two hours, right? Why, why do we have to do all this other stuff too? Not that there's anything wrong with this stuff, but I wonder sometimes why it is we've kind of ceased being astonished and amazed at our God. And I, I think when you look at the ministry of Jesus, He comes across people who are astonished by Him. People who are totally floored by His grace, by His majesty. People totally kind of at the end of themselves and they crowd to Him. And what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to look at two kinds of people in the Gospel stories. People that come to Jesus with no other option and how He responds to them, and then people that come to Jesus with other options and how He responds to them. Luke chapter 18, because there's a bit of a difference. We will start in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now this is a pretty good place, if you're going to be a beggar, this is a good place to do it. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well-traveled by rich people because Jericho was a place where a lot, lot of the temple elite in Jerusalem had summer homes. So he puts himself in a strategic location. Verse 36, when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, right? Because you can't have messy people fouling up like messianic processions. I mean, that, you know, the Messiah's got to, evidently he's got to places to go and people to see. So they told him to be quiet. And then this is one of my favorite lines. But he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now imagine if Jesus asked you that. I mean, that's a pretty epic question. So the, the guy says, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Now, one of the things that I love about this story is if you've ever been around somebody who wasn't in on 
like the church protocol, you know, like you never interrupt somebody who's speaking and you never make any sudden movements and, and, and you certainly, certainly never come in here if you're really in the midst of big sin, right? You always got to kind of get yourself cleaned up first. I mean, what I love about the people that Jesus encounters is, is they were just pretty messy. They didn't care what people thought. So here's this big old procession. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and this guy just stops the procession by saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. And of course, I mean, the, the people that were there tell the guy to be quiet, right? There's not a lot of room for messiness in most religious systems. And Jesus isn't at all threatened by this. He stops and he asks the man, what do you want me to do for you? When I think of the American church, I think sometimes we're more like the people that tell everybody else to hush up than we are the person that just shouts all the more. Right? I mean, I, I just don't see people digging through roofs to get into our churches the way they would dig through roofs to get at Jesus. Right? And in our case, it'd be easy to dig through the roof. Right? I mean, we got a, just a big old hatch up there that says, dig through me. There, there, when, you, when, you, when you look at some of the people that Jesus comes across, I mean, you just recognize this utter and ruthless desperation. They will be near Him, no matter if they have to dig through a roof or fight through a crowd or interrupt a service. They just have to be there. And, and, and then I look at us. Right? I, went to a, I went to a Lakers game several years ago. I'm not a Lakers fan, sorry. Um, and uh, and uh, I, root, I root for teams regardless of whether or not they're good. Okay, so I root for the Browns, the Indians, and the Cavaliers, which means I've had a very lonely life. And, um, and, and we went to a Lakers game, and, and, and somebody took us, and they had one of those, um, those luxury boxes. And so they drove us, and there's a secret way to get into Staples Center, where all the common people, the riffraff, they kind of come in the, the general way. And if you're in one of these boxes, seriously, you go up a different way. And you kind of look down on these people as they're just scurrying in their ordinary lives. And, and, and so we're there, we're center court, we're up high, they bring a dessert tray around, you know, and you can just have any. And, and I was thinking, if I really had, I mean, this is the way I want to do Laker games, right? I want it just to be done for me. I want it to be awesome and wonderful. I'm not willing to go sit on the street corner and beg for two tickets and pay face value to sit up in the rafters. I'm not that big a fan. But there are people that are that big a fan, right? They'll do anything just to get there. And, and I feel like the way I approach a Lakers game is the way a lot of people approach church. It's like, well, if it's all done right for me, then I'm in. But if it ever was inconvenient, or if it ever cost me something, or if it wasn't just the way I like it, no way. And there's a certain kind of person that Jesus comes across in the Gospels who isn't like that. Right? I mean, it always shames me when I want to complain about air conditioning. It always shames me. That there, and believe me, I want to complain. And, and it always shames me, though, that there are people today around the world who are without shoes, walking dozens of miles, without air conditioning, childcare, padded seats, amplification, or even a Bible in their own language. And under the threat of persecution, they are gathering for the privilege of worshiping with other believers the name of this Jesus. And here we are. Here I am. And I'm just like, I'm just like a casual fan. 
As long as it's easy, I'm in. But if I have to work at it, it's a little too much for me. And so when Jesus comes across people who are messy, who are desperate, who aren't all put together, what do you want me to do for you? Go to Luke chapter 5. Jesus comes across these people all the time. Luke chapter 5. Verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, you you all know, of course, that that leprosy, the physical disease, was awful enough. I mean, you, you literally lose the feeling in your nerve endings, and so you could get cut or get infected, and you just would never know it, and, and it isn't, isn't too long before you're kind of just an oozing mess. And, I mean, it's just awful. But, but attached to the physical suffering, there was a, a social stigma that went with that. Uh, in other words, you weren't, because they thought the leprosy was catching, you were taken out of community life, and you were placed in a colony of your own kind. You, you, you were literally untouchable. No one would touch you because it was thought that they could infect you. And, and so you would be cast away from your village. You'd be removed from your family. The children would throw rocks at you. I mean, it was just... And, you, and, and above all of that, you had to walk around announcing your presence whenever you got within 100 feet of people. Unclean! Unclean! Was what you would have to say so that everyone could get out of your way. Brutal! So it's no wonder when Jesus starts preaching, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. I mean, this guy knows poor in spirit. And so a leper shows up. When he sees Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him. When was the last time we'd been face down in front of Jesus? I don't mean just physically. I mean, when was the last time we were that messy in front of Jesus? Like, one of, my, one of my mentors said, you know, prayer isn't a time to be good, it's a time to be honest. And that was really liberating for me, because I always kind of thee and thoued and thined, and I felt like I had to perform a little bit when I was praying. Have you ever fell face down? I mean, the closest I've ever come to face down begging was when I asked my wife to marry me, right? And, and that, was, that was tough. But when I pray, it's kind of ordering off a menu, Jesus, I'd like an extra blessing, an extra helping of blessing. Please hold the suffering with a side of joy and peace. That'd be awesome. There was, there was this ruthless, radical desperation. The man falls face down and begs. I wonder how much of Jesus we miss because we're not willing to be desperate and messy. I just wonder how much of him we miss. Because we're just so concerned with keeping up appearances and making sure everybody knows we're just fine. Thank you. Not so with the people who saw this guy. And notice his question. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, that doesn't just mean healing, although it is that. Clean, you know that has nothing to do with hygiene, right? Clean and unclean were designations about whether or not you'd gone through the ceremonial fitness to worship. And so the man asks, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now notice Jesus' response. 
Jesus reached out his hand and what? Oh, I'm sorry. It seems like there are hundreds of people in this room. And I think I just heard four voices. I mean, I know we're still getting to know each other. I get that. Eight o'clock, they have an excuse, right? They're tired, even though most of them get here at 730. You should have some caffeine in you. It says Jesus reached out and touched the man. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to us, but you have to understand, back then, you didn't touch lepers because it was thought unclean infected clean. If I'm a rabbi and I'm discipling my Talmudim and I am, I'm like, I'm, I'm like one of the examples you would look to about what clean looks like and all of a sudden I go touching a leper, I'm ceremonially defiled. I'm the one that has to go be made clean now. And so, and, and we know from other places that Jesus can heal people long distance, right? Hundreds of people. Yes, I mean, there's another instance where, where the, a centurion servant is suffering and Jesus just says the word and zap, the guy's healed like miles away. So his touching of the man was on purpose. Good rabbis don't touch lepers. And what happens, which is so powerful, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus' clean infects the guy's unclean. Because it was thought unclean trumps clean. No, no, no. Not so with this Jesus. With this Jesus, He can touch anyone at any time in any way and make them clean. See, that's the Gospel. And so often our churches kind of give the subtle impression that you got to get cleaned up first. You got to get your addictions taken care of and your doubts answered and your questions all wrestled through. You got to get it figured out first. And we say, no, 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 that's not Jesus. Jesus touches people and he makes them clean. Don't be afraid if you're in here and you're a bit of a mess. We are too, even though we won't admit it. Because what we found in Jesus is somebody who doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He gets our act together. But we have to come to the end of ourselves first. Go to John chapter 6. So Jesus, one of the things I love about Jesus, and it drives me crazy, is, is Jesus never took opinion polls. He never had focus groups. You know, he never did polling about, you know, hey, what are my, what are my positive ratings, you know, with the crowds in, in, the, in the Galilee? I mean, he just, and there were times when he literally just could have said, yes, king me, and they would have. But Instead, which is what I would do, instead, Jesus, he loves to offer hard teachings right at the zenith of his popularity. I mean, so he's going on and on in John 6 about he's the true bread of heaven and you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And to the Jewish mind, I mean, this is scandalous and offensive and blasphemous and just all this stuff. And, and so people are leaving John 6 verse 60. It says, on hearing this teaching, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, have you ever said that about Jesus? Absolutely. See, Jesus, see, we think Jesus was a bit like Mr. Rogers. He was a very pleasant, 
mild-mannered white guy who just was just trying to help everybody along. You don't put you don't crucify Mr. Rogers. Can we agree? Just as a general rule, you don't put Mr. Rogers to death. Jesus was subversive. I mean, to get forgiveness in the first century, you had to go to the temple, go to the priest, offer a sacrifice, and you were forgiven. Jesus just marches around the Galilee forgiving people. Even before they'd ask sometimes. I mean, he just was so subversive. And, and one of the things that Jesus would do is at the height of his popularity, he'd offer a hard teaching. And, and people would just go, this is hard. And, and, and if you've never been offended a little bit by Jesus, may I gently suggest you've never really understood him. Because he's not come to offer you a wonderful plan for your life. He's come to take it over. See, Jesus isn't for people that want their own agenda with a little Jesus sprinkled in. Jesus has abandoned your agenda. And, and get Him instead. And so He's offering a hard teaching. And, and, then, and then when people start leaving, Jesus has the opportunity to say, you know what, guys, I was misunderstood. I didn't mean it. But He makes it worse if we had time to look at it. And then verse 66, From that time, many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. Jesus looked at his twelve and said, you do not want to leave too, do you? And I love Simon Peter's answer. Lord, can I, I give the Mikey paraphrase of this? Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We've come to see and know you are the Holy One of God. Have you ever been to the place where everything's kind of been taken away and you look at Jesus and go, where else would I go? I mean, Dallas Willard has a great, he has many great lines. One of his great lines is this. You want to know where Jesus lives? You want to know what his address is? It's at the end of your rope. That's where Jesus lives. Now, he lives everywhere else too, but he does some of his best work when you're literally sitting there going, my heart is full of sorrow and anguish, where else would I go? I mean, have you ever been at that place? Does the American church give us permission to get to that place? Or is much of Christianity, at least the Americanized version, actually designed to keep us from being that messy? So my wife and I had two children. We were scared to have a third because we were terrified that that child might have Down syndrome. And, and our, our first one had some markers in utero, and, and, and Justine had it a bit in her family, and, and we just said, you know, two's good, but it didn't feel full. Our family didn't feel full. And so Jesus one day, in a, this mystical sense, said, live, live by faith and not by fear, which I thought meant, don't worry, I'll give you a child that's just normal, whatever that means. But instead, as you all know, Three months before our little dude was born, we found out he had Down syndrome. So evidently, living by faith, not by fear, doesn't mean you'll avoid the things you fear most, but that you'll, you'll see them, face them, and see the grace of Jesus carry you through them in ways that you wouldn't ever want to trade them on the backside. And I remember the day, it was one year, the one year anniversary of my dad's death, that we found out Seth had Down syndrome. And I wish... Guys, I wish I were so mature that I rejoiced that day. I was really sad. 
and really afraid. And it was one of those moments where I looked at Jesus and just said, Really? But where else would I go? You alone hold the keys of eternal life. I've come to believe you are the Holy One of God. And something happens when we're at that place. Jesus doesn't always rejoice in what gets us there, but He does some of His best work when we're there. Because what you discover is that there is no other place I'd rather be. And there is no other person I'd want to be with. And some of you are here at that place completely, right? You have a diagnosis, or or you're unemployed. I mean, you're literally at the end of your rope. And you look at Jesus and you go, well, okay, where else am I going to go? And I want you to know that that's a great place to be. Because when Jesus comes across people like that, what do you want me to do for you? Or He touches the man. But when He comes across people that have other options, it's a bit of a different story. Go back to Luke chapter 18. So back in the first century, Luke 18. So back in the first century, if you wanted to know who was blessed, it was very easy. Very easy scorecard. If you were male, if you were Jewish, and you were rich, you were blessed. Now, you could be blessed, but that was kind of like the paradigm example. So when a rich, young man shows up and wants to follow Jesus, he's the paradigm example of you who would have thought, you would have said, well, yeah, that guy's in, of course. Of course he's blessed. So this guy comes and he says, hey, good teacher. What must I do to share in life in the age to come? And and Jesus says, well, you sure you want to call me good because the only one that's good is God. Is that what you're saying? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he quotes some of the second table of the commandments. He skips one that says don't covet. Because then the man says, well, yeah, I've kept all those. And, And Jesus then gets to the coveting piece. He says, verse 22, When Jesus heard this, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 23, when the rich man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom? In other words, far from being a sign of God's covenant blessing, it could be, but very often riches actually are the things that inhibit discipleship to him which was totally crazy to the disciples. And so they said, well, who can be saved? If it's not a rich young guy, who can be saved? And he says, well, what's of men is impossible, but anything's possible with God. But here's what I want you to notice. The dude had other options, and Jesus let him walk away. See, when we cease being astonished by God, what's the temptation of the American church? Well, follow Jesus, and you can have health and wealth. Follow Jesus and you'll never be lonely again. Follow Jesus and your life will be perfect. It's like follow Jesus and get a free set of steak knives. Right? I mean, we try to jazz Him up when we're not astonished by Him. And so, and and you see this in the way we present the Gospel. It's all about Jesus meeting your needs and solving your problems. And He does meet needs and solve problems. 
But Jesus never presented Himself that way. Right? I mean, He never begged. He never bribed. He never negotiated. He never overpromised. He let people He loved walk, walk, excuse me, He let people He loved walk away. He let them go. I mean, every now and again, don't you think the people of God need to be reminded that God isn't lucky to have us? I mean, it's not like Jesus is standing. You know, when you, when you deplane in an airport, what do they always say? Hey, you have your choice of many airlines. Thanks for choosing us. It's not like Jesus is up there saying, hey, you have your choice of many saviors. Thanks for choosing me. And I know we'd never say it that ridiculously, but, but don't you think every now and again we're kind of tempted to think He owes us a little bit for all that we do for Him? Where we're not only cease being desperate, but we get to be a bit entitled. And when Jesus comes across people who had other options, He loves them. He died for them. He pursues them. And He lets them walk away. Because He doesn't beg. And He doesn't bribe. I mean, think about our Jesus. He's coming into Jerusalem. His disciples are raised in a ruckus. And the religious leaders say, hey, would you shut these guys up? What's Jesus say? Well, I would, but then the rocks would start singing. What? I mean, Jesus isn't lonely. Jesus isn't depressed. Jesus wasn't looking. Jesus didn't come into a world hurting for followers. Right? All of creation declares the glory of God. And every now and again, we need to be reminded that there's this ruthless desperation that we spend a lot of time avoiding that actually brings us closer to falling face down or shouting all the more. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 9. Just a couple more passages. When Jesus has other options, or when Jesus comes across people that have other options, it's just interesting the way he talks to them. You guys okay? Okay, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I, you know, I, I was excited to see you all this morning. Now, I don't know if that's mutual. Uh, I'm hoping maybe someday that will be mutual. No, 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 no. Come on, don't do that. I just have to believe there are a few people going, Honey, you think that young kid's still at the church? And she said, well, Where else are we going to go? I mean, uh, just... <laughs> Luke chapter 9, verse 57. I just wanted to be at a church where I'm a young kid. You know what I'm saying? I just like that. Luke 9, verse 57. Now, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, if I'm Jesus, dangerous game, but if I'm Jesus, I'd say, awesome. Great job. Good choice. Jesus responds with the ever warm. Foxes have places to stay and birds have nests to sleep in, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you say you're willing to follow me wherever I go, but do you understand where I'm going isn't where you think I'm going. It's not a journey of the kind of glory you think. It's a journey of suffering. That is glory, but a whole different glory than you expect. Or or again, he said to another man, follow me. And we know in other instances, people would drop their nets and follow Jesus. 
But this guy said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus re- replies with the ever warm and friendly, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. And now in English, it sounds like the dude's dad just died in the funerals that day. But, but in actuality, the burial process of a father could take a, a whole year. Because what would happen is the, the, the person would die and you'd wrap the body and you'd put it in a tomb until all of the flesh turned into dust. And then you'd gather up the bones and put them in a bone box, an ossuary. And then you'd place the bone box with the, the ossuaries of your ancestors. And so sometimes the process could take a year. So something, what's happening is this guy's saying, listen, this, this process, I'm in the middle of this process. It's going to be a while. And Jesus says, well... Even family, even family obligations are secondary to what I'm about. Which, in a culture that valued family over every single thing, the, the, the scandal of this. Still another said, hey, I will follow you, but let me go back first and say goodbye to my family. Now, a bit of Old Testament background. Elijah calls Elisha to discipleship. Elisha says, hey, first let me go say goodbye to my family. Elijah says, Absolutely. Jesus, when faced with the same question, says, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't drive down the 405 freeway looking in your rearview mirror. Because I know we're familiar with plowing language, so I thought I'd update it just a little bit. So Jesus is saying, listen, following me demands more than following Elijah. If you had your Jewish ears on, that's, that's the undercurrent that you'd hear. And so... We start by saying, hey, we've ceased being astonished, a lot of us, by God. And so we dress up Jesus. Jesus in health, and Jesus in wealth, and Jesus in steak knives. But Jesus never dressed up Jesus. He never begged or bribed. And so we're trying to contrast people at the end of their rope who come into contact with Jesus and how He responds to them, and then people like us who live in Orange County, the self-sufficiency capital of the world. Autonomy is a virtue and dependency is to be avoided at all costs. Where messiness is only for addicts, not for good religious folk. And what would Jesus say? I mean, I work with lots of college students. And and sometimes in moments of honesty, they'll say something like, you know, I want to have fun and I want to follow Jesus both. And they seem like they're in conflict. What should I do? And I say, you know, something like, well, if Jesus were here, He wouldn't bribe you. He wouldn't beg you. He'd let you walk away. If you're still convinced real life is found somewhere else, okay. I mean, just realize the more you give yourself to sin, the more you're formed into the kind of person who sins. And you may get to the point at some point, of after having been given over to that, that you'd never want to come back. I mean, if that's what you want to do. But the last thing I do in that moment is try to calm them into it. Jesus didn't. Instead, notice Matthew chapter 13. Last passage. And everyone said, Amen. Matthew 13. Why I am in Romans, I am not sure. Matthew 13. And this, this is kind of the point for this morning. There are parts of the Bible that I don't like because they kind of 
are overly convicting. This is one of those. Jesus gives a picture of what his movement's like. He says, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And, and, and a very common story, you didn't have 401ks or banks or anything, and so very often you would hide your treasure by burying it somewhere, and you wouldn't have a big sign that said, here's my treasure. And so if you were to die, because the mortality rate was crazy back then, I mean, just a very common scenario. Here's a man working in a field, and he finds someone's treasure. Notice what he does with it. He hid it again, and then in his what? Joy sold everything else because he saw the treasure of such worth. Do you understand what the invitation is? The invitation is to come to the place where you recognize Jesus is the treasure. In other words, the reward of following Jesus, is it health or wealth or joy or peace? The reward of following Jesus is Jesus. And until you're convinced of that, following Him is going to be a tough thing. It's going to seem like a burden. It's going to seem too costly. But when Jesus told stories about discovering Him and His movement, He tells a story of somebody who in great joy... Where is that joy? Where you realize, I've tried every treasure. I've been down every road. I've been at the end of my rope enough and I've seen Jesus do His best stuff so that in my joy, I will willingly forsake everything I could have apart from Him just to have Him. That's the kind of, that's the kind of disciple Jesus is interested in. Now, He loves us all, dies for us all, rescues us all. Anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Absolutely. But more than just giving us a ticket to heaven, Jesus is interested in our followership. And our followership involves coming to the place where you believe there isn't treasure anywhere else. See, the college kids that say, well, I still want to have fun, they believe there's treasure somewhere else. Right? The middle-aged adults that just are all about their careers and their status, their income, their toys, their positions, they still believe there's treasure everywhere else. Right? The millions of people trying to hang on to how they looked when they were young, they still believe there's treasure somewhere else. The people that believe that winning the lotto is going to solve your problems, they still believe treasure somewhere else. The people that believe that being famous is the highest thing a human being can achieve, they believe still there's treasure somewhere else. And so what we have instead of folks who show up to Lakers games, no matter what, they'll take the worst seats just to be there. We have folks who are just like me. I'll show up when it's awesome. And we wonder why the American church is so anemic. Well, we've ceased being astonished by our Jesus and we now have to dress Him up and make Him attractive. Now, He's plenty attractive. Francis Chan, who I hate. (laughs) If you don't know who that is, he's the other teacher and he's awesome. He has this great line. He, He talks about how He hates the book of Acts because when he reads the book of Acts, he can never put the book of Acts down and say, hey, that's just like my church. Because the church in the book of Acts is totally unstoppable, right? People are getting flogged and then after they're released, they go and pray for what? 
more boldness. You had enough boldness just to get flogged within an inch of your life, and now you're going to pray for more? I mean, God takes the, the, the number one leading Pharisee who's actually putting to death and imprisoning followers of this Jesus. Hey, why don't you be my ambassador to non-Jewish folks? That's awesome. The church in Acts was unstoppable. The church in America is fully stoppable. Change your worship style. Change the teacher. Remove the air conditioning. Change the coffee. Make it hard to park. And we all want to complain about that. I'm convinced that that's all symptomatic. That what God wants to do in this place is to remind us that He's the treasure. And maybe you're here and like me, you freely admit, "Uh, yes, I, I still believe there's treasure elsewhere. That's okay. Jesus works with folks just like us. But the goal is get to, the, to get to the place where you're convinced there isn't. And so that no matter what He says, no matter what He does, no matter what happens in your life, you look and you say, where else would I go? You alone are the Holy One of God. So would you stand with me? Would you close your eyes? And I just want to give us a few moments of quiet so that we might go before our God. His kindness leads us to repentance. And so as fully loved children, let's just go before Him and let's ask Him to bring us to the place where we believe He's the treasure more than anything else. And that the reward of following Him is Him. And so Lord Jesus, would You just speak to our hearts in these few moments.